0: Writing from Rome, most likely after the execution of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter sent the following message to Christians living under the authority of the Roman emperor. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. But shortly after the day of Pentecost, when the temple authorities commanded the apostles not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, Peter had said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And then, after being imprisoned for filling Jerusalem with their teaching, he declared we must obey God rather than man. Knowing who it is that we are obeying, however, is often difficult, especially in light of what Paul told us in Romans 13:1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Living in obedience to God and under the authority of human institutions He has established is not an easy path to walk. Discerning the right way to go is hard, especially when signs along the roadway seem to be contradictory. But the key to staying on the right track is keeping our heart right through prayer and our eyes on the goal Paul urged Timothy to keep before the church. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then finally, we must not fail to notice what Peter had to say after instructing us to submit to those in authority. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Over the years, we have explored all those passages in detail. We've always tried to view them through the proper lens of historical context, as well as understand their implications and how they should be implemented. So I see no need for us to do so again today. I simply call them to your attention for personal reflection. And for renewed guidance as you consider how to respond to the viral and civic diseases that plague our nation. And I offer them as a background for understanding how we have responded and continue to respond to the challenges we're facing as a church. Our response to the restrictions placed on us during the COVID-19 pandemic has been guided not only by authoritative decrees, but a desire to follow the will of God, doing that which is right. And submitting to authority is not a foreign concept to us, for we have all surrendered to the authority of Christ in our lives. That we are just now beginning to gather together in worship after being physically apart for three months gives testimony to the fact that we respect the place religious, political, and scientific institutions are to have in our life. But we must never become so subservient to those in authority over us that we forget that Christ is the ultimate authority in our life. And as is made very evident in the text, to which we providentially come this morning, it's not unheard of for those to whom authority has been given to begin challenging the authority of Christ. Jesus has cleansed the temple for the second time. He has once again cast out those who have made a house of prayer into a robber's den and has overturned the tables. In doing so, however, he finds his authority challenged on religious, political, and scientific grounds, three areas from which we often find our commitment to Christ challenged as well. Let's see how he answered those challenges to his authority and see if in his answers we can't find answers for those who would challenge us today. And they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say, from men? Ah, They were afraid of the multitude, for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The chief priests and scribes and elders were in charge of the temple. They oversaw everything that went on there. They had authorized the money changers to be there so worshipers wouldn't pollute the temple treasury with pagan currency, currency that was good enough for their pockets but not good enough for God. They had established the stockyards in the court of the Gentiles to provide pilgrims with approved sacrifices since those they brought never seemed to measure up. Who did Jesus think he was? driving out those they had put in place. They were the final court of appeals on religious matters. They were members of the Sanhedrin who gave him the authority to do what he was doing. They publicly challenged him to answer them, knowing they hadn't given him the authority to do what he had done. But his answer overturned even more tables in the temple that day. He said he answer answer their question if they'd first answer his. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? He then boldly insisted, answer me. But they didn't. They knew he had them. He had trumped their ploy. He had moved the source of religious authority beyond them to heaven itself. They knew they hadn't accepted John the Baptist as a true prophet of God. When he had called them to repentance, they ignored him. But the people believed in him. Many had responded to his message and sought cleansing in the baptism he proclaimed. So they decided to plead ignorance. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He did, however, go on to tell them a parable, actually three parables, according to Matthew, that really did answer their question. He said something that they didn't want to hear in the midst of the parable. Now Mark only relates one of the three parables because they all taught the same thing. So let's move on into the 12th chapter of Mark and read that parable, taking special note of the response from the religious authorities. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Now they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The prophet Isaiah had told a similar parable 700 years earlier, identifying the house of Israel as the vineyard of the Lord And foretelling God's judgment on the vineyard for producing worthless grapes. That judgment had come in the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple in 586 BC. Jesus was here foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and Herod's temple that would take place in 70 AD, adding that the vineyard would be given to others, to the church. Israel had time and again ignored the prophets God had sent. And they were about to kill God's son, thinking that by doing so, they could gain ownership of the kingdom of God, but they couldn't. No religious authority is above God. All must remain under his authority or they will be condemned and any city on a hill that follows their lead will be destroyed, as was Jerusalem twice. That's why we cannot allow any religious body to usurp God's place in our life. No pope, council, denomination, fellowship, eldership, or preacher should be allowed to override our absolute commitment to the lordship of Christ. We should be open to godly teaching and godly men, but no one can take the place of Christ and His authority in our life. Don't let the religious confusion that exists in the world today deter or undermine your confidence in God and His Word if you've surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and are honestly seeking through His Word and His Holy Spirit to be faithful to Him as a worker in His vineyard, don't let the religious pluralism of our day reduce your faith in Him to nothing more than one of many personal choices, no better or worse than anyone else's religious choice. And don't let the religious spokespersons that have set themselves up as arbiters of the proper Christian response to the ongoing struggles in the world, shame you into following their lead. Jesus answered the religious challenge to His authority by pointing to heaven and to the authority of His Word. And so must we. The religious leaders quoted the Bible They even recited sections of Psalm 118 as a regular part of the Passover liturgy. But they ignored verses they didn't like. Especially the verse Jesus quoted to them about the builders rejecting the stone that would become the chief cornerstone. That stone, of course, was him. He had met the religious challenge. But that wasn't the end of it. The religious authorities simply changed tactics and raised a political challenge. Let's read on. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. When the Pharisees and the Herodians came together to confront Jesus, they were an odd couple indeed. The Pharisees hated Rome and secretly sought freedom from Rome's domination. The Herodians didn't particularly like Rome, but they supported Rome's puppet kings over the land of Israel, the the family of Herods. Opposite extremes of the political spectrum were coming together to challenge a common threat in the person of Jesus and to entrap him. They thought they could do it with a question about taxes because then as now, taxes were divisive. The Pharisees opposed government taxes on religious grounds, not only because they didn't want to pay them, but because they were used to support Roman temples and degenerate Roman lifestyles. The rallying cry of Jewish patriots was, no tribute to the Romans. Herodians, on the other hand, didn't want to make waves. They didn't like the taxes any more than anyone else, but they were in bed with the powers that be and gained political influence by supporting Rome. But together, they came to Jesus. And they sounded like smooth-talking politicians. Teacher. We know that you're truthful and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? They insisted on an answer. Then and there, in front of the cameras. At least they would have, if those witnessing the scene had had iPhones. Shall we pay Or shall we not pay? They thought they had Jesus cornered. To say yes would turn the people against him. To say no would make him guilty of insurrection. But what he did left them standing there with their mouths open. He asked for denarius, the coin used for the poll tax. And asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said the only thing they could say, Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Who could disagree with that? Do notice, however, that he didn't define what belonged to Caesar and what belonged to God. He left that for us to decide. He simply affirmed the fact that we do have political obligations, that we do owe a debt to society for the protection and conveniences government provides, but that our political obligations don't make null and void our obligations to God or our freedom to determine Which is which? We cannot allow anyone to set themselves up as the voice of our conscience in political matters and convince us that their political view is the Christian political view. Jesus is the final authority on all things, including political matters. And we discern His will through personal study and prayer. We dialogue with other believers and we seek to examine alternative viewpoints. But ultimately, we make the decision that we think is in keeping with the desires of our Lord. He is a final authority on political matters. And political authorities must never be allowed to intrude into moral and spiritual decisions that God has entrusted to us. The final challenge to Jesus' authority came in the form of the scientific challenge. And some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly Mistaken. Now at first, this appears to be nothing more than a theological challenge, than a scientific one. And of course, modern scientific thought was not an issue 2,000 years ago. But the Sadducees were the rationalists, the materialists of their day. They did believe in God. They even accepted the Pentateuch the first five books of the Old Testament, but they didn't believe in angels, spirits, or the resurrection. Those things were just too supernatural for them. To their way of thinking, these things went beyond the acceptable limits of reason. And since they dismissed the possibility of such things being true, they made light of them and thought themselves intellectually superior to any who did believe in them. That attitude is evident as they approach Jesus with a ridiculous scenario. In order to assure that the land stayed in a family, the Mosaic Law included what became known as the Law of Leveret Marriage. The word Leveret comes from the Latin for brother-in-law. What the law said was that if a man died without a male heir, his brother should marry the widow, and that the firstborn would be considered the dead man's brother, or the brother's heir. Now, it does sound strange to us, but it assured the orderly transfer of property from one generation to another. The Sadducees used this law to concoct a ludicrous scenario where a woman ended up marrying seven brothers who all died, and they wanted to know whose wife she would be when she died. You can see them smirking as they asked the question. But Jesus didn't miss a beat. He said they were mistaken. And they thought this was an unsolvable dilemma and an irresolvable conflict between reason and religion for two reasons. They didn't understand because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't take into account the power of God. They assumed a resurrection would simply lead to another life like this one. But Jesus made it clear that things will be different after we rise from the dead. In this life, we marry and reproduce. Why? Because we die. And there's a need for reproduction. After the resurrection, there will be no more death. So no need for reproduction. We will be spiritual beings like angels. Now, do note, he didn't say we would become angels when we die. Angels are a separate order of created spiritual beings. He simply said we would become like angels. We would be spiritual in nature. And when he said we won't be given in marriage... He wasn't saying the love we share with a mate on earth will end in heaven, nor that we will cease being male and female. We won't become asexual beings without loving relationships in heaven. What we find in marriage here is just a taste of the joy and intimacy and ecstasy we will experience in heaven. We won't lose anything that's wonderful after the resurrection. We'll just gain more. Now, no, we won't be given 70 virgins like the Quran promises to martyrs. But it will be wonderful. Don't worry about the details. God will take care of it. Furthermore, The Sadducees' insistence that the Pentateuch said nothing about the resurrection was based on their shallow reading of the Pentateuch. When God spoke to Moses, he introduced himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say he had been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of. As Jesus pointed out, God is not the God of the dead, the God of corpses. He is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive, resurrected, and in God's presence when he spoke to Moses. The conclusions of the Sadducees were based on incomplete knowledge of God's word and an attempt to limit God's power to their own experiences. And that is the source of scientific challenges to revealed truth today. Conflicts between science and the Bible come from incomplete knowledge of either one or the other or both. There is no conflict between the truth God has revealed in His Word And in his world, it's only our limited understanding of them that sometimes gives the impression that conflicts exist. And it's a refusal to acknowledge that God is more powerful than the laws of nature he established and that he is not limited by personal observations and experiences that leads to scientific challenges to Christ's authority today. Bottom line, there is no religious, political, or scientific authority that supersedes the authority of Christ. We must respect them and acknowledge their God-given roles but we cannot allow any of them to challenge the authority of Christ in our life. We are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, but we surrender our all only to Him. Father, we find ourselves challenged on many fronts. Religious, political, scientific, medical authorities are constantly telling us what to do. And we want to acknowledge their proper role. We submit to the authority you've given to them. But we never, never want to allow them to supersede your authority in our life. Give us wisdom to know how to respond to the voices that we hear all around us, shouting loudly what we're to do or not to do. Let us listen to the still, small voice of your spirit within, guiding us as we study your word to understand what you have said, what you've told us, May we never yield our authority to others beyond the authority of Christ. I thank you for guiding us. I pray you'll continue to do so. Help us collectively and individually to be faithful to you and to the authority of Christ in our life. I'm grateful for these saints who have gathered. I pray you'll bless us as we prayerfully give thought to how we respond to those around us in a world that is so messed up. Find us faithful, Lord, above all else. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name.